0: My name's Andrew Mitchell, and you're listening to Don't Mess With Nature, a series of podcasts in which we try to look at building an equilibrium future of the world where natural capital is in a better state of equilibrium with financial capital. Tonight, I thought we'd talk about sea level rise. It happens to be where I am, or everywhere in the world, in fact, here in the first week of April, a supermoon. It's called the pink moon. It's the time this year when the moon is closest to the Earth. And of course, most of us probably know that uh, that's why we have tides. It's because of the gravitational pull of the moon. So when it's really close to the Earth and sometimes in alignment with the sun, in other words, where they're both pulling in the same direction, you get really big tides. And uh, then when they're pulling in opposite directions, you get what are called nip tides. So it's spring tides, neap tides, according to where the moon is. And one of the curious things, I happen to live on a little tiny island called Jersey, about 160 miles south of Britain. But one of the weird things about the Channel Islands is that we have one of the highest tidal ranges in the whole world, similar to Newfoundland on the other side of the Atlantic at roughly the same sort of latitude. So in our little island, we get a 12 metre high tide when there's a moon like there is this week. That is gigantic. That's uh, that's thirty nine feet, nearly forty feet. We can get tides up to forty one feet in the really biggest tides. That's a massive tidal range. And I was walking along the beach today, just taking a bit of a COVID break, and uh, it was staggering to see how fast the water comes up. Not quite a running horse like it does in the Bay of Mont Saint Michel not far away, but it occurs to me that in six hours we see what the world might see over, say, the next few hundred years. Because we're facing a period of sea level rise because the world's getting warmer. And that results in a number of different things happening. So just in six hours, because we're going up 12 metres, I mean, that's a very big sea level rise. We're not likely to see that anytime soon, but we're likely to see possibly up to a metre sea level rise by the end of this century. So that's pretty quick in geological time. In fact, it's a blinking of an eye in geological time. Why is that happening? Why are we getting the sea level rise? Well, as I said, sea level has been going up and down for quite some time, and that's largely due to the heating and cooling of the Earth. So if you go back 13,000 years, for instance, the sea was about 120 meters lower. That's, that's getting close to 400 feet lower. That's a lot lower. Why? because the Earth was locked up in ice. It was very cold. And uh, so the large areas of land opened up. There was much, much more land than we would see today. And then the ice started to melt, and it melted uh, very fast. And uh, we're not absolutely sure why that happens. And you can see ice melting and freezing throughout time, going back over millions of years in the Earth. And uh, One of the ways we know that is that scientists go to uh, the Arctic or the poles, and they drill down into the ice and you can pull out these ice cores which are about as wide as a boiled egg and you find little tiny areas of uh, little tiny bubbles of gas they are the atmosphere of the earth at that time so the deeper the core the further you go back in time and therefore by putting a probe in those tiny bubbles you can find out what the atmosphere was like at that time and crucially how much co2 was there because co2 is the is the real key here more co2 It gets hotter the ice melts the sea level comes up less co2 it gets colder and uh, more ice but that's all been going on over millions of years what's so different by what's happening now so something weird's happened in the last 150 years because sea level has started to rise and uh, a little bit faster And you can measure that. It's only millimeters a a year. You know, it's very, very small, but it's inexorable. And what seems to be happening is that the Industrial Revolution came along and lots of CO2 has been going up into the atmosphere from factories that are putting out lots and lots of smoke and making things for us to buy or to build roads, hospitals or whatever and so as a result the co2 traps energy i mean most people know this climate change story and things are getting warmer what we don't know is or people dispute is is this natural or is it man-made what's the difference the thing that nails it is that it's never happened this fast ever no one can ever measure anything like this happening in the past it's super quick 150 years is nothing in geological time and it seems to be happening really fast and therefore, we seem to be the agent of this change, and particularly industry and the finance, crucially, that's going in to that industry. And the key thing is we're burning a lot of fossil fuels, coal, oil, that kind of thing. Those things have been locked underground. It might be worth just remembering that how much CO two was there if you go back a billion, you know, billions of years to the beginning of the earth? There's about ninety five percent CO two in the atmosphere. How much CO two do we have in the atmosphere? Today, I'm going to give you a pause to think, see who knows the answer. Look it up on Google. How much CO2 do we have in our atmosphere today? If you managed to Google it, you would have found something rather strange, which is the amount of CO2 in our atmosphere today is 0.04%, near enough 0.037 if you want to be really accurate. That's tiny. That's why it's so sensitive. If we put a lot in, it's very easy to change that concentration. But hello, how did we go from 95? to 0.04 percent. The answer is plankton and trees. Is nature what did it? It's trees growing on the land and plankton in the sea that then died and produces you know, limestone and coral and all that, chalk and trees that eventually created peat, soil, swamp and oil and coal. It was all locked up in rock or products now that we're digging up and burning and we're burning the oil we're burning the coal and actually we're burning the uh, limestone and chalk and stuff to make cement so all of that leads to a lot of that co2 that was locked up by nature going back in the atmosphere very sensitive happening super fast oh dear sea level beginning to rise so how fast will it go and what will the difference be and uh, and who who get affected by this well you know this is one of the problems of climate change it's um it's like a punch that somebody's giving you, but it's so slow, it's like in slow motion. So we don't take it seriously, do we? You think, I can run away from that. But that punch is coming. And there are several ways in which it happens. The first and most obvious is, but it's not necessarily the biggest, is melting ice. Ice melts. You put a hairdryer on an ice cube, guess what happens? It melts a lot faster than you have it in the fridge. It will melt in the fridge, And so what we've done is put a hairdryer on an ice cube. So where's the ice coming from? The poles. Greenland, it's got a mile thick of ice on top of Greenland. If all the ice in the world melted, all the ice, the poles, the big mountains, the glaciers, how much would the sea come up? You can Google that if you like, it's harder to find the answer. The answer is about 67 meters, 67 meters that's nearly 216 feet that's a lot imagine our world without ice and how many coastal areas would be underwater it's gigantic and i was at a meeting of finance family offices the other day and it's probably you know that idea of family offices Uh, we all live in families but we don't all have an office well a family office is where the really rich people have somebody who looks after their money they call that a family office. And these people might be billionaires or multi billionaires. And they are interesting because they think intergenerationally. When they're thinking about keeping their money, they don't think about how I'm going to have enough money to pay the vegetable bill next week. They're thinking about how do I look after my family 100 years from now, 50 years from now. They think much longer term. So they're very interesting to talk to about things like climate change. You go to a hedge fund, they want to know how they're going to make a profit in three months. They have to report quarterly. We have this quarterly reporting cycle. Every three months, the Finance Act has a report. A business has to say, how well you're doing? And uh, a friend of mine once worked for a big family office. They had loads and loads of money, uh, and huge property assets. Journalists would always come to them and say, what are your quarterly results? And he said, um, we don't do quarterly results. We do decadal results. So come and talk to me in 10 years' time, and I'll tell you how we're doing. And uh, that's one of our problems in the world. We, and now our money is chasing its tail so fast that we have to produce all these results so quick that it's completely out of kilter with the way the world is changing. If so you don't think long-term, we think short-term. I'm going to take a bite out of nature and make a big profit now because that's how I have to report. And all these poor old CEOs have to report like this for their companies. If they're not making decent results every three months or that year, they're out of office. They're gone next year. Terrible pressure. But if you're a family officer, you think a bit differently. And in this thing, there was a guy talking. It was the first time I ever heard it in a family office meeting. And it was a company that advises family offices on where to put their money. And he said, you know, this climate change thing, I think we should all start taking this seriously. It's usually in very big, swanky hotels behind closed doors. I said, we should take this climate thing really seriously. And we have looked at what happens if all the ice in the world melts. And we've realized that it's about 67 meters, the sea's gonna go up. So, well, that's probably not gonna happen anytime soon, but if you are thinking over a, you know, 100 years or a longer period of time, we recommend that you get out of real estate anywhere near the coast. If you are in big property near the coast that is within 10 foot of sea level rise, get rid of it. In fact, if you really want to clean your portfolio to take that entire risk out, what we recommend to our family offices is sell everything that's below 50 metres above sea level. Wow. What's that as an investment strategy? I don't suppose there's as many people thinking like that. Some of the smart family offices are because they think long term. So that's a thought, isn't it? So... You know, where's it going to really hit this sea level rise? Uh, there's some interesting maps. You can look them up on Google. What does well look like if the sea goes up ten feet? Well, if you look at sea level rise, I mean, let's look at Florida. Most of the bottom end of Florida gone. It's underwater. What's there? Miami gone, underwater. What happens to the people in Bangladesh? Probably don't, you know, go there too often on your holidays. But there's millions of people who live there, who are living at the sea level, right right on it. And they get flooded all the time because a lot of water comes down in a monsoon. But if the sea came up as well, they're gone. They have nowhere to go. That's millions of people. So what's India done? It's built a fence, a huge fence between India and Bangladesh. Why? Because they can see what's going to happen is that these millions of Bangladeshis are going to want to come to India. Uh, And they don't want them to come in because it creates a massive problem. Of course, who's gonna look after them? Refugee camps on a scale we haven't even considered before. And who's gonna pay? Who pays for sea level rise? Who's paying for it now? Well, it's probably banks and investors and everyone who's financing our lifestyle, which demands a lot of energy. And so we pump a lot of coal and oil. Do we blame them? We're all to blame. It's not easy to point the finger. But you can decide what to do with your money. You can say, well, I don't want to have my money in coal, and I don't want to have my money possibly in oil in the future. I want to back the companies that are changing, like some oil companies that are taking a very uh, real view of how they either become carbon neutral or they are going to change themselves into energy companies and get out of these fossil fuels. Um, These are choices you you can make. But um, there are a lot of people who are going to be affected by the sea level rise. And so I, some years ago, went to have a look at them. It's a bit different from us. If we live, you know, on a coastline and the sea came up 10 feet, well, it wouldn't be so bad, would it? Because you just go further inland, you, your house might get flooded, you go and live somewhere a bit higher up. But what if you were living in a coral atoll, a low-lying Pacific Island state, or in the middle of the Indian Ocean like the Maldives, maybe to holiday in the Maldives and had a nice time on those little houses on stilts, well, I travelled right across the South Pacific from New Guinea to Easter Island uh, some years ago. I was writing a book about the movement of wildlife across the South Pacific and the migration of the Polynesians. And I visited many of these coral atolls, and what I saw was their fields were becoming salty. They were trying to plant crops and things, but they said, you know, the waves now in stormy days, they come in land, they never used to. So it's getting stormier and the sea's getting higher, and their coral atolls. Are becoming flooded, and they know the writing is on the wall. Their whole nation disappears, and they didn't have anything to do with this. They're not the people funding all the coal, they're not burning lots of energy, they're just eating fish and coconuts and having a reasonable life. They're not causing this, but their whole, entire nation disappears. And one of them, Tuvalu. The little island uh, nation of Tuvalu has been incredibly influential in the climate negotiations. I, used to, I spent 10 years going to all the climate negotiations, uh, dealing with uh, climate change. You go to these vast things, 10,000 people in a room, all trying to argue over climate change. And it's hilarious. how Sometimes this little island nation of Tuvalu, because it's one nation, one vote, goes up against the United States, who says, ah, come on, guys, let's keep on burning. And you get Tuvalu, who suddenly stick their hand up, and wave a flag and say, uh-uh, our nation is disappearing. So they were incredibly influential in the climate negotiations, and yet they were a tiny, tiny little line at a point. The nation's disappearing. Who's going to pay for that? They've got to find a new place. So they're now having to invest in other parts of the world and find nations that will take them in. They've got to find a new home. Same for the Maldives. The Prime Minister of the Maldives was brilliant. He had a cabinet meeting underwater with aqualungs, we had a table and all the discussion going on underwater. He was making a point. Well, back to Jersey, back to little rock I live on. The other day I was walking on the cliffs, looking out over the sea uh, in the south, uh, west of the island, looking towards the sunset. And as you walk along, there's sort of grit, the granite grit under your feet. There's things that sparkle in the evening sun. You reach down, you look carefully, they're flakes of flint, little tiny flakes of flint, sharp like arrowheads. And You can find them all around on this big headland looking out to sea. And you pick them up and you think, that's funny. There's no flint in Jersey. It's all granite. It's a granite volcanic upwelling. You don't find flint there. Where did that flint come from? And who made these arrowheads and things, flint napping as it's called? Turns out that these things are ending up to 12,000 years ago. The Neolithic's made them. But of course, there wasn't any flint there. So they chose this, point. I don't know why they chose this point. Great view if you're sitting there flint napping, but you could also see your enemies coming. But guess what? When they were doing it, the sea was way, way lower and geologists know that the nearest flint is about 10 miles away to the southwest out in the ocean today but then it was in a forest they could have walked out there all the way out because it was a big river that ran between britain and the channel islands then because the sea was well i don't know 150 feet 150 feet low i think i said before it was about 216 feet so it had come up a bit since 13,000 years ago You could walk all the way to France from the Channel Islands in those days. You couldn't get to Britain, there was this big river. So somewhere out there in that forest, there was some flint and they knew where to get it. And they brought that flint back to the island of Jersey because that was the highest point around. That's where you could look out over the forest and see the setting sun. So I was sitting there on on that cliff head looking out and and there's a massive cave below where the Neolithics used to have mammoths. And they stored all the mammoth bones there. And I'm thinking and looking out and watching the sun setting and below me are the flints that they made. It felt so alive. Their cave was there. Their paths were there. I could take myself right back those thousands of years and imagine them with their big hairy hands and looking out to the sea and seeing the same view as me. But it's very different now because, of course, the sea level's risen. The trees are all gone. You can't walk to France anymore. There's an ocean 14 miles away and all around the world, the sea level has risen. In the Neolithics—they've gone, and we can't go on just financing all this coal and oil and everything else. We can't go on financing our lifestyles in the same way, because the sea level's rising again, and faster than ever before. And the Neolithics are gone, thousands of years ago. But if we don't change that, we'll be gone next. You're listening to Andrew Mitchell, and this is Don't Mess With Nature. So join me on another podcast soon on how we can find a better way to get the world into equilibrium between nature and money.